Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, talking money and wealth with Heritage Financial, the podcast that digs into topics, strategies, and behaviors that help busy, successful people build and protect their personal wealth. I'm your host, Sammy Azuz, the president of Heritage Financial, a Boston-based wealth management firm working with business owners, executives, and retirees for longer than 25 years. Now let's talk about the wealthy behaviors that are key to a rich life. of the Wealthy Behavior Podcast, where I talk to our Chief Investment Officer, Bob Weiss, about what's going on in the markets and investment universe right now. Bob and I have these conversations at the beginning of every month, and we'll continue to do so, so please look for them wherever you get your podcasts. Bob, how's it going? Doing well, Sammy. How are you? Pretty good. Uh, better than the markets maybe a little bit in September, although they've turned around. We're recording today on Tuesday, October 4th, and we've had a couple of really strong days uh, to start October after what would have to be described as a pretty horrific September. Yeah, I think that that's fair for September and October. I haven't seen headlines as um, to put into historical context, but back-to-back days with stocks up about 3% each day is an amazing start to the quarter. So, um, you know, tough September, but things are looking good right now. So in your opinion, what happened in September? Yeah, we've been talking about this for a little while with the theme of inflation slowing. I think at our last podcast, we talked about how energy prices and our webinar, energy prices have been coming down, housing's been slowing. Well, um, more housing data came out and we saw price declines month over month. So actually seeing housing slowing. And then um, there's kind of a mess overseas in the UK with tax policy, how they um, cut rates, cut cut tax rates from 45 to 40 at the top bracket, and then the market panics, and then they you know, remove that policy. And something I think noteworthy happened on Friday, uh, the Fed Vice Chair, Lial Brainerd, so she's Vice Chair, like second in command next to Powell, she gave a, a speech um, at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and the, the title of the speech was Global financial stability considerations for monetary policy in a high inflation environment. Sounds like a riveting speech, Bob, by the way. Good title. Did you you just start with the the first four words there? there. Global financial stability considerations. So, oh, the Fed is is taking into consideration global financial stability. This is the Fed that, that we've all been so afraid of recently, the guns blazing Fed who is out to crush inflation and nothing's getting in their way. Well, now they're actually thinking about global financial stability. And and this is what the Fed does. They they do these things. They put governors in places to give talks. And um, it's their way, I think, of letting the market know, hey, look, we are keeping an eye on these things and we're not going to bust the financial system. That that is something we pay attention to. So I think maybe almost call like an olive branch that the Fed gave markets that, you know, we're not here to crush you. (laughs) <laughs> that that impacted things this week is what you're saying, because that speech was last Friday. So does that mean you do think the Powell Jackson Hole speech late August, where he was, and and, and we've talked about this, pretty dire and, and pessimistic and kind of rattling the market in terms of, you know, just letting them know we're we're serious, we're we're not slowing down here. We do expect pain to come. Do you think that contributed uh to the September mini meltdown, I guess I would I would describe it. Yeah, exactly. The Fed's almost playing games with us as investors when you think about it that way. Powell 
scares us there will be pain we are going to crush inflation so stocks go down and then Brainerd goes out and says well we're, we are paying attention to the stability so we're, we're not going to be too too hard and stocks go up so um I think that's kind of it in a nutshell but it's not I guess maybe I'm overplaying the importance of the speech and that inflation is also slowing and I think that's coming out in the data so it gives the Fed an out and that you don't need to be so hard if inflation is slowing and you are seeing weaknesses in the system. There's risk to that though, right? I feel like people were somewhat optimistic in July and most of August, and it turns out that maybe in hindsight, the market got a little bit ahead of itself in terms of being optimistic about a good inflation number or a better than expected inflation number. And then we gave that all back plus more in September. So maybe too much optimism in an environment like this could be a double-edged sword. Absolutely. Yep. These things can take time to, to settle through. Um, maybe one example in real estate is month over month, we saw price decline. But in uh, CPI, when they look at rents, rents frequently reset year over year. And if someone's rent is you know due October 1st, year over year, it could still be going up. So it can take a little while for um, these things to go through in the numbers and and the Fed may be waiting to see that. You know, don't don't go running backing up the truck now and saying we're out of the woods, but uh, there are good signs. Yeah. And so, you know, also on the flip side of that, don't be in a rush, uh, which you never should be really, unless your situation's changed. Don't be in a rush to get out of equities or stocks just because you don't like the volatility levels that you're seeing. One thing that's jumped out to me is some high profile media savvy investors, you know, the types of folks you always see on CNBC and are not shy in speaking their opinion, the Jeffrey Gunlocks and Jeremy Siegels of the world have kind of come out crying a little bit about what the Fed's been doing. Pretty aggressively whining, I would say, that the Fed is overdoing it. The numbers are already good. They're improving. They're really going to crush things. You know, what's the point of all this? Uh, Jeremy Siegel's uh, clip on CNBC, which I shared through one of my Wednesday reading lists, was you know, quite strong. You know, the, the Fed chair owes us an apology. This is kind of a train wreck monetary policy. The inflation numbers that we were seeing when commodity prices were high that they told us not to worry about are now lower, and they're telling us we need to worry about them. He, he, he was going at them pretty strong. Are they right? Is the Fed kind of overdoing it? Or are they overshooting it? Or is this just jittery investors who have a microphone and they don't like what they're seeing. I, I think I'd lean more towards their right, um, specifically with Siegel. At what, and it's so easy to, you know, Monday morning quarterback this, hindsight 2020. But when you go back to 2021, um, the, the Fed was not concerned about inflation at all. And you, you look at lumber as an example. Lumber prior to COVID was around, call it $400. It's $400 for a thousand feet of two by fours, like something like that. But if you use the number $400, it went up to about $1,700. And they're sitting there, nope, inflation's not a concern. We're gonna keep rates low. We're gonna keep buying bonds, keep you know, foot on the gas. And inflation was there. And now lumber's back down to $400. So that it flipped up to 1,700. You know, it was $1,000 stayed in, in that highly elevated range, and now it's back down. And now is the, okay, now inflation's there. It's like, well, it was here last year. It's uh, it's kind of gone. So 
I, I definitely relate to what he's saying. And I think it's especially fair to be critical of them in 2021. Inflation was here. And, and it's not just they didn't acknowledge it. They were stimulating the economy. They were there with a gasoline can out, um, which was a mistake. And I, But I think they're, um, they recognize it and they're not going to make a mistake again. Or they may make a different mistake, right? Yes. Like what these guys are talking about is overshooting on the correction side. And I've heard this analogy b before, but the Fed is not, you know, some nimble ballet dancer. It's an elephant trying to stick the landing. And they're not likely to stick the landing in moments like this, but eventually they get going in the in the right direction. So, you know, to me, for investors who can be critical about the Fed and, you know, there are reasons to be critical about them uh, for my entire career, right? I mean, Alan Greenspan overstimulated. Um, and in hindsight, went from the maestro to kind of apologizing for missing certain things. Um, I still hold Bernanke in pretty high regard. I feel like he was the only uh, game in town in terms of getting us through the financial crisis. Uh, but, you know, some members of his Fed committee were worried about inflation well into 2008, which just seems asinine in hindsight. You talk about Powell maybe, you know, ignoring inflationary signs. It, it, that's fine. Uh, and they do deserve criticism, but eventually they get going in the right direction. So if you're an investor and you're listening to this, I would say you don't have to be terrified of the consequences of the Fed overshooting because they can definitely pivot and start correcting things in the other direction. Yeah, I think that's fair. You and I have talked about this before with the VIX in particular as a fear gauge. And I would imagine it's more subdued uh, this month, but where did it get in September? I mean, how how volatile was the market? How how nervous were investors? Yeah, it, it touched around 35 was the okay. level in September, which about matched where it peaked this year. I think back in March, it also hit around 35. To put that in context, 70 is the number that we saw in March of 2020 and then November of 2008. So 70 is, is the number, like the absolute peak of the um, <laughs> great financial crisis in 2020, the absolute peak or trough, however you want to think of it, March of 2020. That's that's like the, the almost the ceiling. Like we've, we haven't seen worse than 70. That's when people were calling us and asking if they should pull their money out of their bank account and if the Dow could go to zero, basically. Yes, that, that, that's the that's when, when the Dow can go to zero conversations are happening, 70. So if you put those aside and, and say, okay, well, how's 35? But if you take 2020 out with the data set, yep, um, and then you take this year out, um, you have to go back to 2011 to see 35 again. So with the financial crisis, so 09, and then... Um, you, know, you saw 35 again in 2011, but then through 2012 through 2020, you didn't see a 35. And 2011, that was when the international markets were uh, not doing well. We had the S&P debt downgrade on the US. Exactly. Markets kind of got near bear market territory. Okay, just some some context there. So that's still, I think, your, your base case, right? I mean, we've talked about this before, that you do think we're going to have a recession. It's not going to be a quote unquote soft landing, but the worst case scenarios of 2008 are just not on the table. The system is is healthier and, and people don't have to anchor to that 57% decline and the length of that recession in terms of trying to understand this market. That's right. And what makes you say that, Bob? What What is better off this time around? 
look at looking back at 2008, I remember like one of the discussions was, uh, you know, well, I think Mohammed Alarian said this. I think was this might have been it was either in the book I read or the podcast you recently did with Mary Childs, but having his wife go and um, get money from the ATM. That was in the book, yeah. It was in the book. Yeah. Um, I mean, those types of conversations, that's scary stuff when like the banks might all close, the whole system will collapse, go get money while you still can. Like that type of fear, I, I don't see it now. COVID, March 2020, I mean, th there was no vaccine anywhere in sight. And uh, I mean, the mortality rate was high from that. It was spreading like wildfire. I mean, that's scary stuff. You know, the price of a, a cheeseburger going up year over year. <laughs> No, it can hit the pocket, but it's it's not like a pandemic that's going to wipe us all out or the financial system melting down. Uh, people losing their homes in a way being, you know, when, when they are financing, you get 100% financing on homes. Um, you're not seeing that these days. So um, I just think consumers are in better shape and just what we're dealing with is not as bad as those two instances. And that book, again, is The Bond King by Mary Childs about Bill Gross and his uh, rise and fall through the investment industry. It's a great book that we'd recommend. We also did a recent podcast episode on it. So then, Bob, I, I agree with all of that. I, I mean, I'm generally an optimist if I have uh, a blind spot when it comes to market, as I do tend to think, you know, it's all going to work out in, in the end. One thing that we're seeing this year that you and I have never seen, and I don't think any investor has, correct me if I'm wrong, the bond market is on track for its worst year ever since that index that we all use, the bar cap ag, to, to, to track U.S. investment grade bonds first started. We're looking at a year unlike any that we've really ever had. Yeah, that's right. The Bloomberg U.S. aggregate bond index is down about 14% year to date, which is yeah, the, the worst year on record. Um, so it's it's been tough for bond investors as markets have adjusted. The good news to this, and it, it, it um, you know people pause and like what's good about bonds going down fourteen percent. Right. It, it actually is pretty real and good news. You, you could think of it two ways. Let's say you enter the year and bonds are yielding two percent. You could keep yields at two percent and bond investors clip away your two percent coupon for rest of your investment horizon twenty thirty years whatever it is. And that's great, 2%. Or yields can adjust and go up to 45 to 5%, call it 5 And they, they spike up to 5%. Now you're clipping away at 5% for the next 20 or 30 years, rest of your investment horizon. That's pretty awesome, if you ask me. You're getting a 3% extra yield for the for rest of your investment horizon. In exchange for that, there's an immediate adjustment in price, which you know, works out to about a 13 14% decline, but now you have a higher yield and that higher yield is there to stay. That yield can go higher and the price goes down more or that yield can go lower and you'll get some price appreciation. So it, it's, you know, unfortunate short term, but, you know, one of our bond managers said bonds are back, like with a big smile, like bonds actually can help you hit your goals and objectives. Now you can get 5% in a fairly conservative bond fund these days. And a lot of financial plans don't need much more than five, six, seven percent return. And when a conservative bond fund can get you five, you're starting to have a pretty good setup. So you don't think this is the start of some long-term bear market in bonds? No, no, definitely not. But why are yields up this year, Bob? It's inflation and the Fed raising rates. 
combined with just the, the risk off environment. And there is a lot to it, but so bond investors do, all investors look at the real return, the return out of inflation. So when inflation's the low, a, a top line nominal lower return is acceptable when inflation's high. Um, even if some people would say, yeah, but Bob, a 5% uh, return on bonds, that's not great when inflation's running at 8%. And I'd say you're right, except for we're not expecting it to be at 8% annualized for the next five years. Um, so elevated inflation and the Fed raising rates. So short rates are in the threes now, um, even the, the fours from them pushing up rates. So they're moving the market. So have bond investors or have, have people been selling, institutions been selling bonds in an environment like this? It's more just the... the a, adjustment in that when the Fed raises rates, like raises the Fed funds rate to uh, 3%, 3.5%, that the market adjusts. Who's going to buy a 10-year treasury at 2%? No one. So just the price just immediately pops up to um, what's an inverted yield curve right now. So even a little below um, like a six-month or a two-year treasury. So what's the risk to investors or for us term in I guess in terms of being wrong about the bond market you know starting to become more attractive and that this isn't you know the beginning of a you know prolonged ugly stretch for fixed income is it that rates continue to go up and inflation really doesn't come under control for a while yeah I mean the the risk it's getting um down a scary path it's like it's a debt spiral the main issue with higher rates is we're talking about the U.S. Treasury market and the the Treasury has um, what is, I think it's around 30 trillion dollars in debt outstanding and you start you plug through that at a, a four percent rate which is around where um, yields are now that's 1.2 trillion dollars in debt service and 1.2 trillion dollars in debt service I think personal income tax receipts. So you take all personal income, it's it's either it's two or three trillion dollars. So you take all the taxes everyone pays in the country. And if it's it's two or three and 1.2 of it goes to debt service, if you start playing that where treasury yields go up even more, that math gets ugly quickly. So you're saying the risk isn't necessarily that rates keep rising unchecked, it's that higher rates could lead to defaults, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that that's financial stability risk and the fed is inducing these higher rates and they do not want um to bankrupt the country you don't think that's going to happen but i did ask you what's the what's the risk in terms of the bond thesis not playing out correct yeah gotcha okay and you touched on this at the beginning with what's going on in england which i, I did want you to explain a little bit more it, it seems somewhat mind-boggling and a headline that kind of crossed out of the blue in terms of their currency crashing and them reversing course on some tax policies. What what does it mean for investors or is it just noise? It's mainly just noise. Also, just a sign that markets are a little finicky right now, like something that shouldn't be a huge deal, you wouldn't think. Cutting tax rates on the top bracket by 5% from 45 to 40, market panicked. And the the, the um, British bond. is that because it's an inflationary move in a country that's already dealing with high inflation. Yes, that and also it's it's the bond market that reacted. So the bond market is a bond investor. You're asking yourself, am I going to get paid back? 
and you just by reducing taxes you just cut your income as the country your 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 inflows are lower so i am concerned that i'm not going to get paid back as a guilt investor um, therefore i require a higher yield to lend you money uh, yep so that that's what happened and uh, and also i don't like this currency as much the currency went down so global investors just kind of puked on the guilt and the, the pound when um tax rates went down they said we don't like this we don't think you can afford it and they had to backtrack it did rattle markets for a little bit but you are seeming to think it's more in the noise category and a sign of the times that we're in versus a you know a long-term portfolio adjustment that people would need to make definitely it could be fair to say it, it was poor policy and the market sniffed that out and kind of reported that back uh, but in more ordinary times i don't think you would have seen such a strong reaction what uh, what else is on your plate or on your minds these days, Bob? As if uh, you know, a prolonged bear market isn't you know enough to get some gray hairs going. <laughs> Nothing we haven't talked about. I guess the the, the one other thing I, I touched on it a little bit with lumber prices, something we we've talked internally about. I think it, it really is a good uh, case study for inflation because you think about the case when it went up so much. Uh, Powell was in his defense saying it was transitory. Um, you had the sawmills shutting down, so the, the people who go in and, and cut the trees to, to make your two-by-fours weren't showing up to work. They had COVID, so you had a backlog, so you had a supply shortage of, of lumber. And meanwhile, houses are being built, people are doing the, the home improvement product projects, putting on new decks. And it seems like that's kind of flushed through the system now that the price is back to where it was at the beginning. So maybe it was transitory, and that's gone. So just seeing that it, that as a, a case study um, has kind of resolved itself is positive, in, in my opinion. So it's a small thing. It's one commodity, but it, it did get a lot of headlines and just seeing that the spike up and the crash down. And now it's, it seems like we're, we're back to a normal level, which is a healthy thing for the economy. And what do you think of the deflation versus disinflation uh, concern? And just setting that up for people who may not have listened to us chat about it in the past. Deflation is a decline in prices. Disinflation is a slowdown in the increase. People would like to see disinflation. Deflation would not be great. We did get, I think, at least one number, a real estate number, that showed a slight decline in prices month to month in a 20-city index. But where are you in terms of deflation versus disinflation? And are you concerned that we could get a deflationary environment and a despite what we already talked about, that it's not 2008, that it could be a little bit of a steeper or deeper recession. Yeah, probably not deflationary um, for the most part. Um, the exception I would say is housing. housing I yeah. think housing did get a little frothy and to see, you know, even housing give up six months of gains is deflation. And so I could see housing prices pull back and that's deflationary, but um Overall, just seeing disinflation, so the, the rate of increase slowing, um, I think is a, a good base case. There's been some bright spots in the market this year and in, and in portfolios, uh, specifically in areas that we've touched on before, uh, one of, of which is real assets, which we did a, a podcast on uh, a few episodes ago, and I think covered that well, and I'd encourage people to, to go listen to that. That's real estate, farmland, timberland, and infrastructure. 
But there's also another segment of the market uh, in, in our portfolios that we haven't highlighted as much uh, that has managed to be a bright spot in 2022. Yeah, we, we haven't talked about private credit much, and we have private credit investments through limited partnerships for uh, some qualified purchaser investors, and then also through interval funds with a manager called Cliffwater. And the two Cliffwater funds we own are up uh, through today. One's 8.5% year-to-date, and the other one's 4.4% year-to-date. So both really healthy gains. Um, they're lending funds, so they're you know, making loans at high rates, so they're clipping the coupons. One thing that's nice with those funds is the way the loans are structured is their floating rate. So they have a base rate. And as the base rate, like the Fed funds rate or LIBOR, as that goes up, in lockstep, their yield goes up. Uh, so they they actually do better when rates increase um, by benefiting from a higher yield. And they do make high quality loans. There are different ways to invest in private credit. And we've um, stayed with what we think are the, the funds that make higher quality loans. So while we're seeing some economic stress and some companies struggle by being senior loans um, backed by good equity, um, they're not seeing an increase in default risk. So, you know, getting a Four and a half and five, and uh, eight and a half percent return year to date. It's been awesome for our clients. So, you don't worry about defaults in a, a recession or an economic slowdown because of how these loans are structured and how the pools are run. Yeah, maybe I said default risk probably has increased, but it's not to the point of severity where you're seeing big markdowns. Got it. Yeah, I mean to to get into the weeds a little bit. What they do is they make what are called sponsor-backed loans. So if I'm making a loan to a private company, there are two types of companies. There's sponsor-backed and non-sponsor-backed. Um, sponsor-backed company is a company owned by a private equity firm. So then a non-sponsor-backed is owned by employees or not, not PE. When you make a loan to a sponsor-backed company, so a company that's say owned by Bain Capital or Blackstone, for you to lose your money on the loan, they have to write off the equity entirely because equity has to go to zero before bonds go to zero, before the debt goes to zero. And a manager like Bain Capital is not going to want to write down their equity to zero. Um, that's, that'll bust a fund if they have really one or two companies go to zero. So by being the senior in the debt in a company backed by a good private equity manager gives you a, a pretty good backstop for valuations. You, you can handle a good amount of, of volatility in the economy. So good to see bright spots in a year like this. This is obviously bear markets are, are never fun. Uh, they're challenging, I think, for investors and investment teams. And we've talked a lot about maybe some technical things bouncing around to certain asset classes. Bob, what's your advice for investors today? I hate to sound like a broken record, but you have a plan and stick to it. If you're an accumulator, you, you better be putting money to be work right now. Yep. You have extra cash flow. Don't, don't sit and wait for things to get better put that to work. And if you are living off your portfolio, you should be diversified and you should have assets that are holding up and doing well. And, and you should be able to sleep at night because of that positioning. If you're not doing either of those things, you need to talk to Sammy. Yeah. Well, I don't know about that, but nothing like a broken record if the record's playing the right tune. So don't worry about that. I, I think my advice is much more simplistic, but also the same um, kind of uh, risk of, of repeating myself. Just don't watch if the market downturn, the red arrows, the, the the negative portfolio values have got you stressed out, just turn off the TV, close the app, do something else. The markets will recover. 
your portfolio will recover well within your time horizon and you don't really need to be watching it in the meantime it's just not productive and it's not uh it's not something that uh you're going to enjoy doing so change the channel basically good advice thank you for this conversation as i always say when we wrap up i'm sure it's really helpful to our listeners to hear what a chief investment officer managing over two billion dollars is uh, thinking day to day but particularly in an investment climate like this We'd love to hear from you at wealthybehavior at heritagefinancial.net. Thank you for listening to Wealthy Behavior. If you found the conversation useful, please consider leaving us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and sharing this episode so those around you can live a rich life too. For more insights, subscribe to our weekly blog at heritagefinancial.net and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Check out my personal finance blog at thebostonadvisor.com. Wealthy Behavior is produced by Kristen Kastner and Michelle Kakadis. educational podcast is brought to you by Heritage Financial Services, LLC, located in the greater Boston area. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are that of the speaker, are subject to change, and do not constitute investment advice or a recommendation regarding any specific product or security. There is no guarantee that any investment or strategy discussed will be successful or will achieve any particular level of results. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal.